welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders, and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Melanie Chung Sherman. Melanie has worked in the field of child welfare, specifically adoption and foster care, that spans international adoption, private domestic adoption, kinship adoption, foster care, and matched adoption for over 19 years. Her specialties include adoption-centered psychotherapy for individuals, families, and groups, theraplay, EMDR, trauma-focused intervention, adult attachment interview, adoption lifespans issues, and complex grief and loss, among other specialties. Melanie will be discussing her chapter in the soon-to-be-released book, Attachment Theory in Action, Building Connections Between Children and Parents, which was edited by Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Chaddock's President, CEO, Debbie Reed. Attachment Theory in Action is available for pre-order on Amazon and will be released in mid-December 2017. I'm here today with Melanie Chung Sherman, who is one of the contributors to the um, Attachment Theory in Action book, and um, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today, Melanie. Me too. Yes. Thank you, Karen. And so, could you just tell us a little bit first about your professional background? I am uh, a licensed clinical social worker here in the state of Texas. I'm also a clinical supervisor, and I've been working in the field of child welfare since, well, it's going on about 19 years now, and got my career started in post-adoption services uh, with an international adoption agency, and I've been working um, through several different realms of placement from international adoption to foster to adopt, uh, CPS, kinship placement, private domestic, um, step family um, adoptions. And so for several years, um, I was really focused in terms of placement administration, looking at not only how to mentor young social workers and uh, young caseworkers moving into the field, but then also working with uh, the entire triad from adopt families specifically and pre adopt counseling um, all the way through post placement and um, adoptees, as well as first parents or birth parents. Um, so now my focus has been in the clinical application. Um, my heart um, just really felt there's this vacuum of need in post-adopt long after um, placement. And um, this is where the personal and professional intersect. And so I recognize that um, within myself, I also had a very, um, unique perspective that I could give back in terms of um, post-adopt services. Mm -hmm. So I have a practice now and I've been working in the clinical field of post-adopt and attachment theory, research and trauma, neurodevelopmental trauma and complex grief and loss. Uh, and I really do a lot of my work within um, adopt and foster family systems. And I love mm -hmm. the system uh, theory and approach um, when I'm working also with adult adoptees and first parents and first parent systems who may have relinquished their child years ago. Mm -hmm. but, um, 
So that's really the focus of my work. And I love uh, community uh, advocacy and uh, community involvement as well. So that's mm -hmm. also more of a secondary passion. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I also have to mention you're a fellow survivor of the adult attachment interview two-week coding I am. <laughs> as, as am I, so we have sort of a, a trauma bond. <laughs> 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 that tough course and surviving it, but, um, and, but so um, we actually met through my wanting to have uh, some chapters in the book of uh, adult adoptees. I had mm. reached out to some adoptive parents and thought their perspective was really important. Um, and then I thought, well, wait a minute. What, what about um, the perspective of, of the adoptee? Um, and I couldn't change my proposal for the book yet a third time because then I might have wanted a birth parent perspective. So we would have had the whole triad. But so you know, tell us a little bit about the chapter that you wrote and, and, and just whatever you want to share of your story. Right. And um, first, I want to I want to thank you and um, all the contributors for the, the wealth of knowledge and the vulnerability in the book. Um, when I was asked, when you had um, initially invited me to, um, to contribute, I did. I took a pause for a little bit. My colleague had reached out and shared, there's this book coming out about attachment. They're looking for um, adoptive person's perspectives, um, but as well as professional perspective. And I could have gone, there was really this um, dialectical approach I could have taken between, do I stay with the professional knowledge and the heady knowledge I understand and I can make a third person. Um, but I know that you were really wanting to integrate the personal. And I think one of the things I, I paused was during that season and still to this day, as I process through um, my own truths and history within my adoptive family, and as well as making sense of um, what brought me into this field was a lot of the hard truths um, growing up within my family and within the community. And I thought I can try to skirt around that. I can try to pretend everything was okay. I had lived like that for so long. And so um, I made the choice um, to be very truthful and this is probably the most vulnerable of my story that will be very public and very out there. So there are moments that I feel that intense um, pressure or stress of, I think for many adoptive people, we struggle with that sense of perfection, the overfunctioning. I can feel right into that category as well. But then also it is not necessarily a counter narrative but I know that my personal story doesn't always reflect or is not always reflected in a lot of adoption narratives that are disseminated. And so those hard truths may, it flies in the face of what may be um, traditional in stories. And so I remember asking you, I'm, I'm going to submit this and these, this is difficult. And, um, seeking counsel and seeking a lot of quiet um, in my writing process and also the, the support of faith, 
who was co-writing in the chapter as well, um, was absolutely phenomenal. And through that was, we engendered a friendship and became that secure base as well, she did, in the writing and really helped um, establish another, this external sense of courage to say, tell me your story, I wanna hear that. Because I recognize, even on the clinical end, the professional end, there's more stories like my own but we just don't have the words. And I say we, but many adoptees just have not necessarily had the ability to make a coherent narrative of the things that have been so procedural and um, internalized about what we think our stories should be versus what they really are. And I don't think that's just for adopted people. I think that's for all of us in general. Um, but when you had mentioned going through the AAI and that we are we're trauma survivors from the AAI, I will say I even at that point, it was when I was um, sitting in class and Dr. Hesse was going through the categories of different attachment patterns. And I recognized I couldn't see them the way other people saw them. And that was one of those first it had been happening for a while um, that I recognized there's something else within my own history that I was trying to idealize. And when I sat back and really came home from California and sat with the months of scripts that we have to sit through, I said, I, I need not only to find my own, um, go back into therapy, because I'm very open and honest about the helpers need help. Um, and really began to deconstruct that narrative. And it really was this, I think there's a divine timing when you reached out, Karen, because I was in a space where I'd really begun to um, reconstruct and not just deconstruct my story and put this into um, a really genuine and authentic narrative. And it still changes. So I think about what this will look like in five or 10 years and what my kids will read or what I will then process and then reprocess again um, because it is so fluid because our life histories are no matter um, if you're adopted or not but I think that complexity of adoption I was really trying to explore that in an attachment modality as well that this isn't one directional but bi-directional um, and what I mean by that bi-directional of family systems and how we may perceive what this young client may be bringing to the table and being able to take the courage, the necessary education and resources that we do have as professionals and also look behind the curtain and not idealize one part of the system over the other. And I think that was really important. Um, and I think one thing that I, I still have to be very aware of and accountable for myself as well, not to idealize one triad member or one part of the system. So adoptive parents or adoptees or first families or professionals, but really try to integrate how this looks like and why we function the way that we do and try to find grace and empathy inside of that. Yes. You know, in thinking about the adult attachment interview and how we use idealization as a very specific um, mm -hmm. thing happening within the context of the interview, but you know, using that term more broadly, 
it seems that the adoption community um, wants to idealize adoption and that sometimes when people want to speak some some of their own truth that that maybe goes against the fantasy maybe that someone might have about you know whether it's an adoptive parent um, or whoever um, you know could you speak to that a little because sometimes this isn't very popular <laughs> to share no it isn't and I think this is I, I think there is this um, this space that is opening up for the for adopted people and for first families, probably more in the marginalized portions of the triad. It's not, um, it's not always welcome, whether this is in big public forums or even in publications or writing. I remember years ago being told, you've got to clean that up. You know, you look like the angry adoptee. I think many adopted people are so worried about being pathologized. And I won't lie, I remember sharing um, correspondence back and forth with you and also with Faith about my fear of being that uh, perpetual child, that perpetual kid from a hard place, when really the hard work of um, putting a narrative coherently together and the hard work in terms of trauma um, of recognizing what that space feels like, not just as an adoptive person, but as a person in general, as a woman, as um, a clinician. We can wear all these different licensures and hats, but at the end of the day, we're human. And what does that mean to be human? And it means to be very real. And sometimes when adoptive people share these harder aspects which are really real aspects that I think all of us can mirror because as much as when I, as much as adoptive people may share this, um, I also challenge not only adoptive parents or adoptive family members and first family members, also professionals, that if we can't take that deep dive in our own reflection, it's so easy then to categorically um, label what we think trauma is. And I think through the writing process, which is also, um, it was taking fear away. There's a fearful part of revealing so much and so deep, but also um, it, was, it was freeing. And I think being able to do that even a year and a half ago has been able to open me up to a, a much more authentic place for every single client, for my who walks through that door for my kids, for my husband, for the loved ones in our arena. And I think that is such a personal and private journey that I chose to make more public um, by publishing in this, in your, your book. But also I think it speaks to the fact that when we all move, whatever that looks like in healing, it doesn't end us that we can still be holistic in who we are and we can relearn the things that we didn't learn to parent ourselves well, to love ourselves well, that earned security. And when we do that as professionals, when we do that as parents, when we do that as educators, whatever that looks like, then we offer up this very deep space. And um, I think that's a hard place for most people to go to 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's what makes it so challenging in the world of adoption, because it's so hard to talk about abandonment and pain. And it, I sometimes worry because sometimes we could really die on the altar of attachment or trauma or what this is when something may be right in front of us in terms of, you know, today for this individual, um, I can label it as unresolved trauma, but for them, this is my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And for them, this is, this is how I've learned how to survive. So don't call it trauma for me. Help me recognize what I, I've done to survive. Honor that space. And then we can deconstruct the stuff later mm-hmm. if I want to. And I think that's what I've learned in the hard work I've had to and still have to do um, for the things I experienced as a kiddo. Um, but also, I think it brings a depth of um, patience and knowing when I work with kids and when I work with teens and parents about what we think healing looks like Mm -hmm. and how people define that. Because my brother and I would have been defined as reactive attachment disorder. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I think we were also survivors in our own right. And so honor that space first and then help me understand what all that looks like. And I think that's where I can come from in, in that perspective versus the academic knowledge of this is what trauma is or this is what disorganized attachment is. And we need that information. I'm definitely not poo-pooing that. Um, but we definitely need the space of relationship of self and relationship with another person. Yes, I um, when we look at... Oh, I'm get, getting an echo there. When we look at attachment research and other kinds of research, we're looking at likeness across groups of people and looking for patterning. And and I think what you're bringing out, there is an authentic, real, unique story <laughs> within within falling into one of these classifications or 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 whatever terms that we're using. And I, I I'm so happy that you're making that distinction. It's such an important one. Um, I was wondering, uh, Melanie, if you could give a little context for your adoption, um, Mm -hmm. the era in which you were adopted and that type of thing. Um, Right. Right. I really, I truly do believe I have so much, I have grace, I have empathy for my, my adoptive parents, my mom and my dad and my siblings. And we, my brother and I were adopted from Korea in the seventies. So at this point there were very few regulations and international adoption even here domestically. Um, And we didn't know what we didn't know. And I say we, because as I've joined the ranks in terms of professionals, but my parents also didn't know what they didn't know. Um, But I also, but I I counter that as well, even all these years later that um, even if we don't know what we don't know as parents, as professionals, then it is a responsibility to try to find the information, educate ourselves, and really listen in, lean into um, what our young people are saying, adoptees, first families, the ones you may not see at the table. I'm in a very privileged position professionally because um, this is a privilege to be asked to sit at the table. And I recognize many adoptees and first parents are not asked. Um, particularly adoptee of color, 
to bring in these different nuances and perspectives. My parents adopted us at a time when love was enough. Um, we didn't have attachment history. <laughs> you know, um, the work of Goldwyn and Maine were just really beginning to, um, to get started and uh, it wasn't even legitimized. People thought, no, you know, this is the height of psychoanalytics. So um, attachment, <laughs> what a strange theory. Um, but now we understand in terms of neuroscience and research and uh, the evidence-based practices of many different profound modalities from EMDR to TheraPlay and child center play, we recognize how important it is to integrate these. Um, and my parents didn't have that. My brother and I didn't. Um, this was at the height of the adopted child syndrome. So a lot of pathologies that were taking place regarding adopted individuals without an understanding of the early developmental impacts, the trauma of separation from birth, even um, prenates, prenatally, um, we didn't have the information regarding what healthy attachment looks like. And I think within the child welfare profession, even clinically, because um, many individuals coming out of child welfare become clinicians. So they take that package. I had to do a lot of work to deconstruct and break down what I thought attachment was, because I think we really use what it really looks like, the child attaching to the parent, but it, it really has to be that dyad. Um, my parents grew, we were um, young adolescents. Oh, actually this is back in the, in the 90s. So I was um, toward my late adolescence, young adulthood, but this is a rise of Foster Klein uh, in Evergreen. And the idea of what we thought attachment was, and even as professionals, I, because I, um, I hold that space, is I, I may start at a conference or <laughs> in writing to say, I'm really sorry <laughs> about what happened. I hear from adult adoptees who didn't understand when they had holding therapy, they didn't understand what RAD was. It was just labels thrown on them. And parents' desperation of trying to find some some port in the storm, some sense of answers and security for something they didn't have. And I think we have a lot more information now that we can help arm families. And I think then it is the responsibility of parents and of professionals and so many others to do their hard work on their personal selves. So then they can implement that wholeheartedly in relationship to their kids. So I don't fault my family. There were other things in terms of neglect and abuse that came from their own history. And I forgive my parents. I forgive my siblings. And I have to love them from a healthy boundary. Um, but how that then has down, downloaded for my brother and I may look really different mm -hmm. for, um, than other, other people. Our, our stories are unique. Um, and as I'm pausing, I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> out loud, <Yeah>. meta-analysis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about your thinking. Good. Yeah. You know, I know it's a ridiculously broad subject to ask one person to speak to, but um, I'd just like to hear some of your thoughts just about international adoption in general. And, um, you know, there's been almost a glamorization of this, maybe with Hollywood people adopting internationally and, you know, also a real rise in the faith community 
of, of calling people as a biblical mandate to adopt. And so many families of faith and bringing children over um, to the United States and maybe not really having a good idea all that all that that entails. Right, right. Um, you know, I started working in international adoption really at the height of the evangelical adoption movement. Um, I worked mainly with evangelical agencies here in at least a geographic area that I live in um, that was that was really the container um, of, of where placement was happening. And I saw, I think first it's, it was the neutralization of terminology that we haven't used in a while that began to normalize a, um, a movement, this adoption push internationally. And at that point, I'll be honest, I had not, in, I had not really reconciled any part of my own narrative. It was still very idealized. And it was still very much, um, it was a protection for me. So I fell into um, the narrative of, um, of adoption rescue. And um, even in terms of, of placement, I was part of that juggernaut. And so I want to be really accountable for my own responsibility in that. Uh, conversely, what I saw and what I experienced, um, I didn't last very long in post-adopt. It was just a few years, but it was enough for me to really begin to step back and look at um, the motivations of what may bring families and what may actually bring entire collective communities into developing nations. And I had to sit back and think about what was happening in my own birth country of South Korea, even during the 70s or um, very close to the end of, of the Korean War. And those motivations have never been, um, um, it, it wasn't like they didn't exist. I think what they what happened was it got legitimized and then we found terminology for it in terms of rescue the orphan, the orphan terminology came back. Um, salvation became not just horizontal salvation biblically, but vertical. So if I am to um, fulfill not only the salvation, that's a lot of pressure for a child. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure for a family system mm -hmm. um, to secure my own salvation. Now it became vertical. So I had to do this. Um, lacking a lot of in-depth training and supervision of not only the workers on the ground who were also caught up as well, who still, many still may believe that I want to respect that space and where they are in that journey. But I think what's happened is this inevitable um, rise of quick placement of family systems overseas that didn't understand um, because we had a supply and demand. And I sat on both sides of that. Um, so I am quite concerned about uh, even international adoption today um, because of checks and balances as much as we want to try to legislate and we want to be involved in terms of um, looking at what policies or procedures look like. At the end of the day, the adoption industry as a whole, um, and I can say that wholeheartedly because I've been in it, um, will still push in terms of placement. And so I think what happened was the idea of what permanency is, is actually, um, it became uh, conflated with placement. Permanency in terms of adoption, but what are we doing to sustain family systems abroad? 
and also to prepare these families because permanency doesn't end at placement because I know you and I have seen it. We've seen it with our um, colleagues, the number of children who are rehomed, the number of children who are dissolved. And for I have one little one, she's six and she's like, what does that even mean? Mm. Um, the number of children who move into placement are disrupted before finalization. And so if we really talk about biblical mandates in terms of permanency and what family is, are we taking care of those impoverished? Because this is where the heart of um, the hard stuff goes back to inequality. Um, it goes back to social justice. It goes back to um, racial differences and what we're considering globally of what family is. And I think in a lot of ways it got a little lost along the way and everybody then in a push had to retract that and so now we're seeing kiddos years later after the height of the placement where families are really in crises who really truly wanted to do what was best truly felt this was what they're supposed to do and are feeling inadequate incompetent and scared and overwhelmed and then this um, is also transferred to the kids because the kids can't save that they never were supposed to do that. Um, and international adoption is, it is multifaceted and incredibly complex, but as a international adoptive person, um, I, I always consider my first family, my birth family in Korea, I consider the socio-global politics at play and the economics, um, but at the heart of that is what each individual kiddo and parent have to contend with long after agencies may close, workers are gone, you know, who fills in those gaps for them to help give them a voice about what happened? Um, I was a big answer. <laughs> I think I was kind of all over, but um, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Um, I spoke with a father yesterday and, um, I always ask the question, and surprisingly, a lot of people don't seem to ask this question, but I ask adoptive parents, how did you make the decision to adopt? Why, why did you adopt? Um, so important. It, 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 it is amazing to me how, how uh, infrequently it, it is asked. Um, and he said, you know, we felt we, we have three biological children, but we felt God calling us to do this. And it is an adoption that's really in trouble. You know, they're 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 looking to to find the child another home. And and when I had so much pain when he answered because I could just hear the shame in his voice, like the the pressure if you feel like God called you to do this, you know, and then to feel like you're failing. I was just, and, and it's not the first family, of course, I've talked to because with, with the, like you said, with the, um, the orphan summit and all of that in the evangelical community, I, I've talked to many parents, but it's just so painful for everybody. And doesn't it, I, I find then with our, the information we do understand and know, I think, um, or how fluid attachment theory and research is. I look at that and see how they see God 
and how then they see themselves and in that narrative of how it plays itself out, even in attachment patterns with their child. Mm. And when they don't have that um, reciprocity, how much then that hits that fight or flight for them, that inadequacy of self. And so even balancing between working with the parental, if two parents home or maybe a single parent or whatever a blended family may look like and for that child and um, the deep, for some, the deep despair of spiritual crises, which is really feeling that deep attachment and parental crises, that disorganized state of I'm all alone, um, has been so profound for some of the families that we see. And, um, you know, that disorganized state has to then, it impacts, we know, for every single child in that home. Mm-hmm. But particularly for that child by adoption who's come in with so much complex history um, and to really walk with them in love and grace, but also with um, a firmness and um, an authenticity to, to do some of the hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, we can probably keep talking here. <laughs> you know, and I, I do want to thank you so much, um, you know, for the chapter and your bravery and your vulnerability, um, obviously. And, and thank you for, for sharing here today. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people have been listening to Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and in, in the last <laughs> years. And I'm like, wow, you're, being vulnerable. So um, it's just very beautiful and very brave. And, and I want to thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And we are, this will take all of us to bring healing. So hopefully it will bring someone healing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. For being. Thank you very much, Melanie. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to traumaattachmentcenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.